I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk, where we take a unique view of world events. We report news as history. With me today is the editor of StrategyPage.com and well-known military author, Jim Dunnigan. Associate editor and syndicated columnist, Austin Bay, also joins us. Welcome, Austin and Jim. This is our typical time to talk about the coming year. Uh, we'll wrap up uh, the year that we're currently in uh, <clears throat> next time we talk. But, Jim, what, what's uh, coming for us uh, in 2017? Well, actually, the, the, the most, most dangerous uh, you know, defense, as it were, uh, uh, risk we have to face is a possible collapse of the uh, Chinese economy. Uh, China is posing a number of uh, military threats, you know, with uh, their attempts to expand their borders at the expense of uh, unwitting neighbors. Uh, most famously, for most Americans in the South China Sea, but they have claims uh, on the Indian, uh, in, in India, Northeast India, uh, actually in Northwest India as well. Um, and they also have uh, claims which they haven't exercised yet on uh, East Russia, far East Russia, um, which is something Russia has to worry about. The, um, the Chinese economy is in very bad shape. And the reason why it's of military importance to the world and especially to the United States is because uh, Russia, uh, China is the source of a lot of, of electronic components which are necessary for many American, you know, weapon systems or military equipment in general. Um, and if their economy has a, a hard crash instead of a soft crash, which the Chinese government is trying to prepare for, um, it could have some, you know, serious implications for military readiness. Of course, it would have more implications for Chinese uh, readiness, and I, I, I doubt it would it trigger China into doing something rash, like uh, North Korea and Iran, you know, threatened to do it. Um, but, you know, from the United States' point of view, it is the, is the largest uh, threat that the American military faces. Now, on a more global basis, uh, the things we have to worry about is a possible nuclear exchange between Pakistan and India. Uh, this has been brewing for a long time, especially since the late 90s when both countries, you know, tested and revealed that they have uh, nuclear weapons and they've been building up their arsenals. Now, we're talking about, you know, 100 or so uh, warheads on each side, but they've built ballistic missiles and they have aircraft that, that can carry uh, nuclear bombs. Um and there's a problem in uh, in Pakistan, a long-term problem, where the military is under attack, as it were, for its decades of uh, corruption. Um, and one of the scams they've run is setting up India as a threat to Pakistan, when India has never been a threat to Pakistan. Um, that's another story which we cover at length, you know, in, and regularly in the strategy page. Um, but when both countries got nuclear weapons, we thought it would calm things down again. It did, but the military is a is a is corner. It painted itself into a corner, um, and they are in danger of losing not only a lot of their rights and privileges, uh, but you know, a lot of senior officers could be prosecuted for corruption. 
and then of course one of the uh, one of the sins of the Pakistani military was uh, thinking they could weaponize Islamic uh, terrorism and just aim it, you know, in in, uh, in particular directions like that India and uh, and Afghanistan, and that sort of backfired. I mean, literally. Uh, so that's another problem, but that doesn't really impact us. Um, the other problem is Iran, which again is also a problem. You know, the thing with Iran and China are is they have a tradition of being, you know, keeping the military under a large degree of adult supervision. In other words, they do not act rashly. I mean, historically, they don't. They're not given to, you know, doing something stupid. Um, and uh, although Iran talks a radical line uh, these days and has, you know, since the 1980s when the uh, the current uh, religious dictatorship took over, um, that is more a, a matter of uh, internal politics. In other words, to keep the radicals under control, uh, they basically get out. And most Iranians will tell you this. I mean, even in Iran, you know, you get them off to the side, out of the way from the secret police, and I'll say, come on, this is all bullshit. Um, and, but, you know, the, the country is run by a religious dictatorship, and the Iranians have to at least, you know, give lip service to this business if we're going to nuke Israel, uh, which, of course, would be suicide. And, you know, the more tradition-minded uh, Iranians, and this includes most of the, the uh, religious leadership, the people who actually, you know, run the country, um, they are aware of this, but they can't come out and say it, you know, publicly. Uh, they do say it privately, but, you know, again, all politics is local, like you say in those, and this is particularly the case in the, uh, in Iran. Uh, China, ironically, has a similar problem, you know, with, uh, maintaining the loyalty of the military, um, which is not radical, uh, but the Chinese military is in danger of, uh, leaving its own press release. I mean, they have all this new equipment, they have more money for training, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the, uh, the government, uh, encourages the state-controlled media to take all the press releases from the military at face value about, hey, look at us 50 new uniforms, look at our, how effective our troops are, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, the, uh, the Chinese, like the Iranians, have gutted the military of uh, a lot of talent by making loyalty to the, uh, the, the leadership, the state leadership uh, in China's case, the Communist Party, in Iran, it's the religious leadership. Uh, that's more important than uh, military competence. So <laughs> you basically got a loyal but unstable and, and not very and not as competent as you say they are military in both those two countries, uh, which you know could have disastrous uh, effects um, if the Chinese leadership decides that maybe a little war somewhere, a little literally a little war, uh, will uh, will gain us more domestic support. Uh, North Korea is threatening to have workable, you know, uh, militarized nukes. In 2017, that's interesting because they've said they've they've been on nuclear power for several years now because they've tested it to varying degrees of success on nuclear weapons. But as we've reported constantly, they don't do you much good unless you have a way to deliver them in a ballistic missile. Because uh, the North Koreans certainly don't have any aircraft that can deliver, and uh, what few merchant ships they have out there are watched like hawks, so they're not going to 
sort of slide one into a uh, you know Western port uh, with a uh, with a nuclear weapon in the hull in, inside. Um, so uh, that's something you have to worry about because you know the uh, the uh, even more communist, more Stalinist than the, uh, the communist government in North Korea is even more unstable. Uh, than what's going on in China. I mean, the Chinese may be, uh, still be a communist police state, but they are a more, much more rational you know, communist police state. Um, and uh, the problem that the, uh, the North Koreans have is that uh, it's difficult to tell what crazy stunt the leadership is going to pull next in order to uh, maintain power. It's just slipping away through the fingers because... Uh, as is customary in a, in a case like this, in order to survive economically, they've had to allow the growth of a entrepreneurial class, the Ganju, the money people, as it were. And uh, these people are very subtly, you know, they're not, they're not indulging in any treason by North Korean standards, but they're changing the country anyway. I mean, there are parts of the country where the Ganju live, uh, and they're becoming a larger segment of the population. Uh, which are very westernized, they get their hands on western goods, they dress better, they eat regularly, uh, they have electrical generators, so they have power. In other words, satellite photos can tell you where the Donju are by simply looking what areas of North Korea are lit up at night. Very few. Uh, but the growing number that are, are basically powered by wealthy uh, Donju who can afford to uh, you know, run their generators uh, all the time at night. Uh, beyond that, you know, Islamic terrorism is a threat, but it's not a, a major threat. I mean, it's not something you have to worry about. Uh, the biggest thing that's happening uh, in the Islamic world is there are more and more Muslims openly calling for a solution, as it were, to the uh, the problem of the, what is basically endemic uh, Islamic radicalism. Uh, it's been present in uh, in Islam since the beginning. Uh, it's always been a problem. It, 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 it flares up periodically, uh, but it's worse this time for two reasons. One, the uh, the Gulf states, especially Saudi Arabia, uh, where Islam was born and where the holy places are and where the government basically plays at being an extremely pious you know, Islamic state uh, when they're actually notorious sinners on a big scale. But they've got a billion dollars, which they basically paid off a lot of their local uh, religious radicals um, uh, by uh, allowing them to uh, run the education system, to have the religious police, and to invest billions of dollars in uh, in, in basically establishing religious schools and sending uh, you know very conservative uh, uh, clergy, teachers, and what have you overseas. And this is why you have this, this international outbreak of Islamic terrorism. The, the, uh, the West, especially Europe, only recognized this, you know, uh, after uh, uh, 9-11. Uh, I mean, it was present in, in, in the 1990s. Now it's come out. A lot of nasty things have come out in Europe about, you know, uh, lapses in counterterrorism operations in the last 20 years. Um, but now they are basically forced. Uh, to recognize that they have basically tolerated the growth of an internal threat. In other words, uh, a lot of the uh, Islamic terrorists 
uh, acts uh, committee in Europe uh, in the last few years have not been carried out by recent migrants, but by the children of people who've already been there for a generation or two. This is especially true in France. And again, this is because the, the Saudis have basically uh, set up, you know, satellite uh, uh, TV stations. Uh, they've set up these uh, religious schools. Uh, this is all shiny new stuff, you know, from the outside. But inside, they're, they're basically uh, recruiting for Al-Qaeda and, 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 and uh, ISIL. Um, now, the Saudis are aware of this, and uh, they're being basically criticized more and more for it because <laughs> they're basically complaining that ISIL is an international problem, uh, but the quota to that is, but Saudi Arabia caused it. Um, and uh, so they're basically trying to serve two masters, which as Christian scripture shows, you know, doesn't work. Uh, but basically what the, uh, the Islamic world is heading for is a place that the European Christianity uh, reached, or Christianity in general, reached 500 years ago after the Thirty Years' War and the various treaties and understandings that uh, didn't totally eliminate, but, but largely reduced to a manageable level the religious violence which was tearing uh, Europe, which had been tearing Europe apart, you know, for uh, several centuries at that point. Uh, but now, if you have an outbreak of uh, a major outbreak of uh, religious violence in any part country in the world, uh, it can spread. Uh, I mean, not just you know, its message as it were, the news. Uh, via the internet or what have you, um, but you know the practitioners uh, and they and and the 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 opinion surveys in Islamic nations. For example, there was a recent one in Bangladesh, which is very you know which is basically used to be East Pakistan, and yeah, compare and of course they shows you the difference between Pakistan with or without you know a military that's backing Islamic terrorism. There was no such movement in in Bangladesh to basically try and use Islamic terrorism. They cracked down on it from the beginning, like most Islamic states did. But they've, they've, they've had, they've had uh, recurring problems, often caused by uh, uh, terrorists or, uh, you know, preachers uh, imported uh, from or snuck in from, you know, Pakistan. Um, but they, they ran these opinion surveys and they found out that, in, especially in rural areas, the young people... Uh, they believe this message that Islamic terrorism was was the way to solve all the problems, and that's very worrisome. Now, unlike in in, in a lot of uh, countries, it's difficult to act on this in Bangladesh because the, the the vast majority of adults are very much opposed to the Islamic terrorism, and the Islamic terrorists have had an extremely difficult time, you know, gaining any traction in Bangladesh. But it goes to show you, you know, what the problem is now. As a military uh, threat, it's very it's very low for the West. But compared to the past outbreaks, there's dozens of, of, of outbreaks of Islamic you know, radicalism and terrorism in the in the Islamic world that had no impact on the West because even the news didn't get out often until you know days, weeks, months, you know, depending upon the century. Uh, maybe a generation later, that oh my God, you know, 40 years ago there was this huge massacre in you know uh, in Syria, blah 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 blah. Uh, now it's instantaneous, and and this is a problem. And also, it's easier for Muslims, young Muslims, uh, to travel uh, to the West, uh, not just looking for work, but to also carry their uh, their radical 
you know, uh, Islamic religious radicalism and 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 and, uh, and uh, fondness for Islamic terrorism uh, with them. So again, we can. This is this is a, a curse of, of modern technology and all that oil money. Uh, it has backfired uh, in ways we didn't expect. Uh, again, it's another example of the law and unintended consequences. Uh, in hindsight, it looks perfectly obvious, although a lot of people haven't noticed that yet. Um, uh, but it, it, the uh, the Islamic world has been slowly, uh, often with official backing, in recognizing this. The question is, can they do what the Europeans did, you know, in the in the mid uh, 17th century, and and literally, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, agree and get the you know the church hierarchy to agree uh, to to settle. A problem with Islam is, you know, like Judaism, uh, there's no centralized um, religious authority. Uh, you know, there are certain there are certain uh, Islamic universities, many you know, ancient over a thousand years old, like in Egypt, which are recognized throughout the Islamic world as being premier uh, sources of, of wisdom on you know deciding you know what is truly Islamic and what is not. But they haven't got the power of a pope. I mean, that's one good thing you can say about a pope. And even when the pope. Uh, you know, no longer spoke for all Christians, as happened by the, the 17th century. Uh, if the Pope declared, all right, you know, call it, uh, the, uh, the, the, the reformers, the Protestants, uh, they should find by us because, you know, they were the, they were the victims of a lot of this, as much as the Catholics were, uh, in, in Europe of all these religious wars. Um, and Islam hasn't got that. So, you know, that's still a threat, but it's not a major threat, you know, uh, to the West. It's a major threat to the Islamic world because that's where 90% of the deaths occur. Uh, and of course, they, they, the popular media in the Islamic world blames it on the West. I mean, a lot of, uh, uh, uh Muslims in the Middle East, they, they literally believe this. And I've had spoken to some educator once, you know, working in the West. Uh, sometimes you gotta get them, you know, a few drinks, which is un-Islamic. But anyway, they, uh, they will, they will say, you know, well, of course, you know, ISIL is all a, a CIA, you know, an Israeli fabrication. Uh, they created it and they're just trying to hurt Muslims and, and you're blinking, you, you know, and they go, some of them, when they sew up, they say, yeah, I know that's nonsense, but, you know, back home, you know, that's the current belief and you don't want to go back home, you know, with, uh, with, uh, un, how should I put, unpopular ideas, basically get you killed, literally, back home. So there's a problem which has no easy solution. Uh, as much as people would like in this situation, but it's not a uh, a massive threat as the collapse of the uh, the Chinese economy uh, is to uh, most Westerners. And there's a you know, great prospect for minute 2017. Right, <laughs> great, uh, Austin. Uh, what are your feelings on what's going to happen in 2017? Well, my feelings are... <laughs> or, or what you actually... I mean, not your feelings, but your uh, your analysis of what, what's going to happen. Uh, look, J- Jim leaped right to the big story, the potential big story that's uh, got... had attracted the people that know know what's uh, going on in China, and that's the Chinese government grappling with a economic uh, slowdown and a, and a changing economy, uh, internal economy, domestic economy, uh, at the same time 
uh, trying to deal with uh, the tiger that the Chinese Communist Party has been uh, riding, which is the expectations of the Chinese people. That was uh, the difficult uh, balance between uh, the four modernizations of Deng Xiaoping and the demands of Tiananmen Square. Remember how Tiananmen Square ended, Dan? The 2,000 dead. And that was uh, 1989. Uh, Chinese economy. How does China, how does the Chinese Communist Party and major Chinese industry uh, deal with that? And at the same time, China has made a strategic military commitment to the uh, South China Sea, all the artificial islands. They have gone ahead despite the political and diplomatic resistance that they have sparked in Southeast Asia. Uh, yes, they've had some uh, remarkable, uh, in the case of the Philippines, uh, an apparent Changed uh, political change, saying, uh, well, we're going to try to get along with you. At least that's coming out of the current president. It's not coming out of the Filipino uh, uh, military. But uh, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, certainly Singapore, uh, and really the, uh, the Philippines are uh, in a quasi-alliance to stop the Chinese uh, march south through the uh, South China Sea. Given the potential for domestic disruption, what happens with the South China Sea operation? Is it already uh, the, the military's uh, province? Do they try to uh, use it as a uh, nationalist political tool for solidifying uh, what the domestic support focus on an external uh, problem instead of the internal problem? And what's the reaction? especially with uh, the United States uh, now turning to saying we're going to deal with uh, this uh, uh, deal with this problem uh, we're getting the United States is getting encouragement uh, from Japan and even uh, Taiwan to uh, confront China in the South China Sea and yes I said confront uh, a freedom of navigation operation is a military peaceful military demonstration uh, of both military power and uh, diplomatic and political concern, and somewhere between five and five and a half trillion dollars worth of goods sail on ships through the South China Sea uh, every every year. It's a, a huge uh, uh, transportation uh, uh, artery. That leads to another miscalculation. If if China is going through internal restructuring, which is a which is a nice way of saying verge of in, internal instability. What does North Korea do? Jim's already talked about the bomb. Well, heck, I remember a, a podcast that Jim and I did uh, almost 10 years ago uh, that uh, where we talked about, look, North Korea likely has a bomb. Now, they'd had that, their fissile experiment uh, in 2006, uh, they didn't really get uh, a, uh, a nuclear explosion that they got. They were they were close to uh, close to it. So they had a bomb, but as Jim said, the the issue uh, militarily is can you operationalize it? Can you deliver it? Well, they're now in a place where it sure looks like they can deliver. It. And South Korea and Japan in particular aren't putting up with the extortion game uh, anymore. How South Korea and Japan 
perceive North Korea and also how they perceive China's willingness to attempt to rein in North Korea or, or rein in North Korea adds to the political volatility of the, uh, of the region. And now we're out of Southeast Asia into, into East Asia, Northeast Asia and South Korea, Japan and the Chinese, uh, littoral. Uh, area, Shanghai, and then on back, uh, and, and back into the interior, uh, Beijing, and r- really down, down to, uh, all the way down to south to, uh, Guangdong, Hong Kong, and, and Canton. Uh, it's, that's some of the most economically vital and productive areas, uh, uh, on the planet. Uh, world can't afford a war there. And yet there are a lot of people who are in Japan and South Korea who are Tired of the North Korean, uh, the threat of North Korean nuclear uh, immolation. Will there be a cap- miscalculation by Beijing in terms of supporting North Korea or triggering something in the, in, in the, in the South China Sea because of their own internal, uh, issues? Again, going back to what Jim, uh, pointed out right at the beginning of the program. Or, uh, are, are there going to be effective, uh, Cool head uh, diplomacy. Uh, I think the, the the route is is everybody wants to continue to uh, focus on uh, on economic issues. Everybody that's rational, but Pyongyang, North Korea, uh, does not behave uh, uh, behave rationally. So look, that, that's just China, Russia, and Ukraine. Look, Dan, that's a simmering war. It's not a cold war. It's been going on since February of 2014. Uh, now Putin's got himself in a <clears throat> in a bit of a uh, pickle. He's uh, certainly made <clears throat> some progress. He, and from his point of view, he annexed Ukraine, has affected control of parts of the uh, Ukrainian Donbass Donbass region, but uh, Ukraine hasn't collapsed. Uh, how he perceives the incoming uh, new uh, U.S. administration really is uh, uh, up for grabs because he's behaving like a, a classic Russian nationalist slash Russian uh, I- I- imperialist. Uh, it's, remember, Vladimir Putin said one of the great tragedies of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union, which, by the way, is uh, the 25th anniversary this week. And it should be coming out today, a couple of days late, but my uh, current Creator Syndicate column is uh, on the collapse of the Soviet Union and how we're seeing its continued effects uh, here in uh, end of 2016, beginning of uh, of 2017. But what does Putin do? What are the effects inside Russia? Russia's having uh, economic uh, issues uh, as well. Lower oil prices have uh, taken the uh, uh, taken the edge the strength out of uh, out of the uh, uh, Russian econ- uh, Russian economy and the you know the body bags still come back from uh, eastern Ukraine of uh, Russian soldiers dying there who and they're not even supposed to be there even though everybody knows uh, knows they are uh, is that uh, how does that play out I, I don't see a Europe a war in Eastern Europe Dan. Nevertheless, there's a lot of room for miscalculation because of the of the uh, uh, continuing festering in in, in in Ukraine. Now, I talk about North Korea uh, miscalculating or maybe or maybe even acting in desperation because 
if they if the the regime in North Korea steps back, they'll see that everybody's growing tired of them. Maybe even uh, maybe even Beijing. Uh, but let's go to the let's let's go to the uh, Islamist terrorists. Uh, do they miscalculate because they see uh, they see uh, Europe reacting so? Uh, with such fear to the uh, in, internal attacks, uh, such as the uh, uh, Christmas market attack uh, in Berlin in, in uh, December uh, 2016, or as the uh, uh, ISIL uh, rump caliphate uh, in Mosul and eastern Syria uh, crumbles, do they uh, launch uh, attacks, even more desperate attacks, uh, in uh, in Europe, throughout the Middle East, uh, in the in the United States, what's the response to that? Uh, that's uh, it's again just this uh, desperation. But when if they succeed in in killing several thousand people in a, in a single attack or several hundred, and if they succeed in because they have uh, there's an indication that that the Islamic State has had uh, access to some limited uh, chemical weapons if they succeed in, in using uh, uh, chemical weapons and, uh, and uh, uh, getting uh, mass casualties. What's the response there? Uh, this is harder to, uh, to, to estimate because it's the, the concern I'm expressing here is best based on, on, on speculation of what very dangerous radical militants might do. But it will, if they succeeded and pulled off a, a mass terror attack and with mass, mass uh, casualties, uh, that's a, it's a very dangerous period for the next uh, three to six months following, uh, following that kind, uh, kind of attack. Uh, that could happen anytime. It doesn't have to happen in 2017. It could happen here in the last few days of, of 2016 and still have the same effect. But Syria's collapse, uh, Syria. That uh, how is how will that play out? Uh, right now, it, Turkey and Russia are claiming that they reached uh, an initial agreement for how to end the, the Syrian civil war. And the speculation, the immediate uh, speculation is, is that uh, they'll. It'll look like what Syria really is, a huge Lebanon with all these little uh, enclaves of, of ethnic and uh, uh, ethnic enclaves and sectarian uh, religious uh, enclaves. Uh, there'll be a division. Is Turkey going to accept that there would be a Syrian Kurd state? That will be very, uh, very interesting. But how, how, how do the, uh, how do other Arab states from Arab Spring respond to that kind of division. How does Iraq respond? This is not necessarily recipe for a war in Europe or a threat to the North American continent or a threat even to Central Asia or much beyond North Africa, but turmoil in the Middle East. And uh, despite the low oil prices, Dan, the Middle East is still the world's a uh, major gas station. It may not be that of the United States, but it certainly is that of uh, the uh, East Asian economies. 
which uh, when we started off this discussion, we talked about the fragility in, in China. Uh, that also, the, that Syrian collapse, uh, relates to some of the internal political changes we see going on in, inside Turkey. Uh, uh, one, one week you'll read claims coming out of uh, southeastern Europe and and, uh, and Turkey that uh, the disenchantment with the Erdogan government is, is so deep that we'll see a civil war in Turkey. And then that, that will disappear for several months because of, of uh, the... So I, I doubt that that's what we're looking at. Erdogan has taken the... Uh, the uh, Attempted coup of July 2016 and, and purged, <laughs> run, it, run it as a huge political purge. Uh, at the same time, he's uh, put uh, what's left of Turkish democracy in a, in a precarious situation, which is why you read the, the statements about internal conflict in, in, uh, w- within Turkey. But uh, how Syria shakes out certainly affects Turkey right there, uh, you know, right there on its border. And finally, I guess I'll add one other thing: uh, the, the Great Congo War Number Three. Uh, Joseph Kabila failed to turn over power, the president of Congo, on uh, December 19th. Uh, he's succeeded in moving into a third term, even though it's an abrogation of the constitution, and the constitution's built on a peace agreement that ended uh, the Great uh, Congo War, Great Congo Slaughter, where any, somewhere between three and five million people were killed or died as a result of the uh, uh, of combat disease starvation and so forth so it's a I mean a huge huge uh, slaughterhouse that uh, the, the Congo the Congo was a huge slaughterhouse now it could be again because that uh, that that constitution was the beginning of a period of can't call it peace with all the little wars going on, particularly in eastern Congo and down in Katanga, uh, in Katanga. but uh, better than it was. You also have a huge investment of the U.N. peacekeeping mission, now called MONUSCO, in, uh, in Congo. But there's real indication because of Kabila's uh, raw, uh, selfish uh, power grab that the war, war could reignite. Uh, there's a lot of diplomatic, uh, uh, many diplomatic operations, a lot of political and economic pressure being brought on Kabila's leadership cadre uh, and his supporters to get him out of power sometime in spring or by mid-2017 uh, so they can hold a national election. That's tough. To estimate, there were some last week. See, that's that's the problem with with uh, the short-term, sudden information flurry of new information. There were indications that there was going to be uh, a new deal worked out by the end of 2016 or the first couple of weeks of uh, January 2017. I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, that said. There's a there are donor nations, really the, with the cash, uh, can do a lot to the elites in uh, the in 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 Congo. Those the uh, elite leaders of of the various tribal and uh, and political and and political factions. Uh, 
and the UN really does have an army, the most powerful army inside uh, inside Congo. Uh, that is a situation where uh, perhaps uh, wealth and, and exile is the better part of valor for Kabila, and he he does he does resign. Uh, and uh, I doubt that he would go back, uh, uh, stay in the country. He'd probably, he'd probably leave. That's uh, something for a future negotiation. But it would avoid a new conflagration. And the reason I've devoted time to it, Dan, is like I said, the last one, somewhere between three and five million people uh, were killed and largely off the world's radar because it was in uh, places that difficult for uh, reporters and uh, even spies to assess to where a lot of the uh, combat and struggle and, and dying occurred, in part because Congo was so huge uh, and uh, parts of it still uh, quite remote. So, But I don't write that off. Is that a threat to uh, the United States, Western Europe, per, per se, uh, even other parts of Africa, no, but it would be a, a huge uh, potential for another huge loss of life. So I think that uh, it needs to be noted that that's that's a it's a situation that's still very much up for grabs. Jim, how is the new administration coming in the U.S. going to affect things in the coming year? I don't think they'll make any radical changes. I mean, you have the situation in Israel uh, with the, uh, the, the, actually, the, the, uh, the information war that the uh, Arabs and the Palestinians are waging to try and you know, delegitimize, you know, make, uh, turn Israel into the bad guy in all this. Uh, the United States was siding with the Arabs. Uh, that's going to change, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean, the, Israel is the most powerful economic and military power in that part of the world, uh, and they are certainly the most stable. I mean, you know, you hear about all this horror going on around Israel, but inside Israel, the economy is the, the fastest growing economy in the Middle East, the most stable economy. It's the safest place to be in the Middle East. Uh, uh, so, you know, as long as the Israelis can keep it up, and, and they will certainly have an easier time of it, you know, with, with the, the, the new American government. Um, but something else, I, I want us to bring up, you know, the, uh, the donor nation. This is something that gets very little attention, none practically in the media, is that they are having an impact because all these, these, uh, yeah, there's been a vast increase in the number of refugees, you know, mainly because of all the, the violence, uh, that also just described in Africa, but also in the Middle East, you know, uh, yet another outbreak of Islamic radicalism and what have you. And the problem is, that the, the majority of the, the, the aid money, you know, for free food, for food aid, for ethnic money, you know, for all these NGOs that, that sprang up after World War II, there are thousands of them now, that's just the Red Cross and, and what have you, uh, they, they basically need cash, and they get the cash from donor nations or, or large, uh, you know, uh, foundations, private foundations that, that, that contribute money. And these groups are basically voting with their money. They are basically telling countries like Congo that um, uh, that are basically uh, suffering from self-inflicted wounds that if you don't shape up, we'll just send our money elsewhere. Because the problem is that there is more need than there is cash. Um, people don't realize, for example, that the United States is the largest 
donor, the major donor of food aid throughout the world. You know, Palestinians have been living off free American food for, for generations. Um, the same with, you know, refugees in Africa, uh, you know, uh, South Asia, you name it. Uh, it's American cash and American food uh, that is, you know, keeping a lot of people alive. And then, of course, a lot of the donors help to decide you know, who's going to get what. They're realizing that it's, it's a bad investment to try and send money to a place where, A, a lot of the aid gets stolen. I mean, literally, either by the local governments or by the uh, one or another of the local, uh, uh, you know, militant factions. Uh, you know, it is, sometimes it becomes headline news, like in Somalia, where the Al-Shabaab, the local Al-Qaeda slash ISIL, you know, affiliate, uh, you know, was, uh, was, was waxing, uh, you know, very strong a few years ago. But the aid group said, look, you know, this is a waste of our energy and, and money. Uh, we're sending it elsewhere. And literally they did. And suddenly Al-Shabaab had a lot less popular support. Uh, and, and they're finding out this happens. And nobody wants to talk about this because this is very Darwinian, as it were. You know, in its approach, it's very old school in effect. I mean, this has been, this sort of thing's been going on for thousands of years. Uh, uh, if the pot, local population is not willing to calm down, well, just cut off any aid they depend on from the outside. And if that means that people starve in large numbers or suffer from other privation, then so be it. Because again, as the aid organizations are pointing out, it's a matter of who can do the most with, with the aid we have to offer. And the age is quietly, they don't, they don't special press releases on this because it's rather callous. I mean, it can be spun by the media and you know how the media is with, you know, disasters. Um, they, uh, they just quietly and, and of course the media cooperates. They, okay, we understand because the aid organizations are a major source of news in areas like, like Austin points out, you can't get, you know, even spies into easily, much less, you know, journalists. But aid workers are somewhat welcome because they bring, you know, uh, stuff you literally can't do without, like food, medical aid, and what have you. Even the bad guys need that stuff. Uh, but when the when the aid groups are pulling out, uh, the, the the locals listen. Uh, but again, that's something that can't be applied on a large scale. Although it is, as there is more need, uh, there is less supply, as it were, to satisfy that need. And uh, yeah, so the, the, the bad actors are basically creating their own solution by becoming so prolific, and this is especially the case with the Islamic radicals, uh, that, you know, it's not that the West doesn't want to send aid, which we have in the past, but when there's such a, a, a imbalance, as it were, between what is needed and what is available, you know, the people doing this supplying and saying, look, uh, we can operate here. You, you basically kidnap and kill our aid workers, both local hires and, and the foreigners. You won't let us supervise the distribution of aid. We know a lot of it's getting stolen. So what's the point? And they just quietly stop sending it in. Uh, and this is what actually accounted for a lot of the starvation, you know, in the, the collateral vets as the military likes to put it, or the aid groups as well, uh, in Congo. Because literally you could get the aid in there. And the aid group said, well, you know, we've got a demand over here and, and it's easier to get the aid in without risking the lives of our, our people and as well as the effectiveness of the stuff we're sending in. So we're just not going to try. Uh, again, they don't publicize this because it's what actually happens. And it does have an impact. 
Uh, again, nothing, nothing any aid group or government wants to issue a press release about it, but it doesn't go unnoticed. So we're pointing it out. Be aware. If you misbehave too much, you start. Dan, let me make a comment about that. Uh, the, the NGO burnout, aid, aid worker, aid organization burnout. Uh, it doesn't get much. Uh, attention at all, um, and because it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very much off the radar. And just to pick up on uh, the, the discussion that uh, Jim and I are having about operations in remote and, and dangerous areas, uh, remaining below the information radar as uh, a, a means of, of maintaining, it, 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 it's, it, it gives something of a safety buffer. That's because the, the bad guys operate in the air say, well, okay, they're not saying anything about us. They're just trying to you know, feed people and take care of wounded people and, and including wounded, uh, wounded rebels or wounded government troops or, 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 or whatever. Uh, so there's the, the, the cover of, uh, of little information has some protective effect. Uh, at least that's, that's what the uh, aid, aid workers uh, will tell you. Nevertheless, several places, Syria and Afghanistan, uh, NGOs and aid organizations uh, feel that uh, their, their efforts have uh, not uh, have been undermined, to say the least, destroyed. South Sudan is something of uh, a uh, major lesson here. There was a lot of effort, particularly on and, and religious organizations, sectarian aid organizations, to uh, support uh, South Sudan. Um, and uh, the South Sudan Civil War, the, which was really a, a tribal war between the Dinka and, and, and Nur at, at its core, uh, just destroyed <laughs> and in, in several cases that I'm uh, I'm aware of, the aid that was used well and and properly to try to build infrastructure and uh, provide uh, education so that South Sudanese could uh, uh, develop on the on their own. The, the, in other words, we're giving you fish hooks and line, not fish. You'll so you're going to learn how to how to fi- uh, how to fish uh, 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 yourself. Um, so this has happened in Congo as well. It's not a, to, to get the, get to the point that I raised and then Jim uh, elaborated on an extremely uh, uh, extremely accurate discussion, Jim, about how how the uh, influence uh, how these organizations influence uh, situation is. Uh, it's not decisive influence, but it is because they have had people. The organizations have people out there on, on the ground, and they see it and they know it when they say we're not doing it anymore it has an effect or a diplomatic and political effect and truly smart diplomats uh, nations uh, uh, if you had a competent US State Department you'd be aware of that as uh, as a, uh, a tool to some degree uh, the major Countries that have been in the in the UN are aware of what the aid organizations of very much. I should say this are very much aware of what aid organization operations in Congo, and they have encouraged uh, these uh, major aid organizations to put pressure 
on on Kabila as if they had to encourage him because many of the organizations are way ahead of the uh, of the diplomats and knowing what's what's uh, going uh, on uh, politically uh, and ec- ec- economically uh, uh, on the ground. It can act as a firebreak to uh, a civil war or more war. Uh, at the same time, it's also one of the biggest uh, intelligence signals when the agents, organizations start pulling their people out that something big is about to happen. Uh, these, you say, hey, hey, guys, th- this is intuitively obvious, uh, but the thing is, is uh, getting the immediate uh, intelligence, the, the facts of who's doing what to whom and who's going to leave uh, is uh, often <laughs> runs two or three weeks behind behind the reality. Uh, so it's uh, it basically look in the terms of the Congo, in terms of the Congo, the, the, many of these uh, aid organizations really can um, help uh, the effort to uh, stop uh, a civil war. They can uh, put put it on the put it on the uh, real. Pressure on you know, some of the uh, bad actors in the in Congo. Well, it, it, it's time to wrap things up, and uh, so uh, we'll uh, end uh, what we think is going to happen during the next year. There, uh, next time we'll be talking about <clears throat> what happened in 2016. Um, so we'll talk to you, gentlemen. Then, thanks, Dan. Thank you. Happy New Year. All right, bye, guys. Bye.